God loves all the people of the Middle East, not just Israel, but her neighbors as well. But what is his plan for this area? How can we understand the disputes over territory? What is the spiritual condition of the Jewish and Palestinian people? And how can the church be praying for them in the epicenter? Good evening. Thank you, Skip. I uh, appreciate it very much. I, I have enjoyed and, and deeply appreciated Skip's friendship as well over the years, including Lenya and his whole family and team. And so it's an honor to be back here in Albuquerque for this conference. One of the things I love about Skip is that he, he loved Christ. He loves the Word of God. He loves to teach it. He loves to preach it. Any door that opens, that's where he wants to be. In, co- in high school, or actually in college, I think it was, he studied for a while and lived on a kibbutz in Israel, and he has led more than 30 tours to Israel over the years. But he doesn't just love Israel, and that's another reason why I love him. Uh, he loves the Palestinians. He loves, he's been to Iraq to preach and teach. He's been to Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt and Turkey and other countries in the region to preach, to teach, to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and to get a sense, to learn from them as well. How can we love you? How can we serve you? How can we, in the Western church, help our brothers and sisters in the epicenter? And I deeply, deeply appreciate that, brother. Amen. Well, on behalf of the Joshua Fund board and staff, I want to welcome you as well to the 2012 Epicenter Conference. Uh, welcome to those of you here in Albuquerque and to those of you joining us around the country and around the world. Uh, it's an honor that you would uh, participate in this conference with us. Over the next few days, you're going to hear from Israeli and Palestinian and Jordanian pastors and ministry leaders, Jews and Arabs. You're going to hear from them about how they see the enormous threats and challenges facing them, what they see God doing in the Middle East right now, and what they think the future holds. You're going to hear from some of the world's leading Bible scholars on some of the most controversial and sensitive issues concerning the theology of the land of Israel and the worldwide movement inside the church known as replacement theology. Uh, you're going to, we're going to talk about what does that mean? Uh, why does that matter? And I think one of the things you're going to learn is that in God's perspective, it's not an either-or issue uh, in the Middle East. He does love the Jews. He did send Jesus through the Jewish people to be the Messiah. But that wasn't all. Jesus himself, as a Jew in Israel, said, love your neighbors. Well, some people say, I don't want to love them. They're, they're, they're my enemies. Okay, Jesus said, love your enemies. Oh, you know, that seems to cover, that com- seems to cover everybody. So if you're planning not to love anybody, then, then, you know, Jesus is not, really not the one for you. And the love your enemy strategy, believe me, nobody else in the Middle East is doing this. Nobody's trying that. Uh, followers of Jesus Christ are among the, are, are the few, uh, the only, but how many of us are really living that way all the time? We need to not only love the neighbors, we need to love the enemies. And one of the things we're going to do over these next few days is talk about what does that mean? And what's the biblical theological basis for our love for the whole, pe- the whole group of people in the epicenter? What's more, you're going to learn about Bible prophecies uh, that, that, that speak to the future of the people of the epicenter and practical ways that you can make a difference uh, to the lives of the people in the region, both Jews, Arabs, Iranians, 
uh, and others. Now, tonight, I have two objectives. The first is to define the epicenter. And the second is to describe the current state of the epicenter. So let's begin. Now, what do we mean by the epicenter? Obviously, that is uh, not classically a Middle Eastern term. The epicenter is a geological term. It means the point on the earth above the center of the earthquake. When an earthquake happens deep below the crust, uh, right above that point where geologists can pinpoint where that, that, that earthquake emanated from, that is considered the epicenter. Now, when I wrote a book a number of years ago called Epicenter, one of the reasons I chose that term, the central reason, was because not only is that a geological term, but I think it aptly describes Israel, Jerusalem, and the countries surrounding her. Why do I say that? Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations, with lands around her. So God is saying that geographically, he considers Israel, Jerusalem, at the center of the nations. Ezekiel chapter 38. Uh, if you look in the, in the passages between verses 8 and 12 in chapter 38 of Ezekiel, you find these verses. In the latter days, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them, at the center of the world. In fact, if you look at that more carefully, uh, some translations will say at the navel of the earth or the belly button of the earth. That's the middle. That's the center. So again, geographically, God considers Israel, Jerusalem, at the center of all the other nations that he set up on earth. It wasn't the first nation, but for some reason, in God's sovereignty, he's chosen that to be the middle. Uh, I know people who live there feel like then, yes, we're also in the bullseye, and that, that's certainly true. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah of the world, said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what? You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now, Judea and Samaria, that's the territory that we now generally normally refer to as the West Bank. So Jesus is saying, I want want you to be my witnesses for the gospel, the good news of salvation through him, his death and resurrection. In Jerusalem, uh, among Jews, and as well as in Judea and Samaria, among Jews and Arabs and others who live in the region, and outbound even to the very ends of the earth. And of course, in Revelation chapter 21, Jerusalem is the last city ever mentioned in the Bible. You ever realize that? The last city ever mentioned in the Bible. And if you look at all the other prophetic references, you know that as we get closer to the return of Christ and then eventually the consummation of history, all eyes will be riveted on Israel, Jerusalem, the epicenter of the momentous events that are shaking our world and shaping our future. This is where God considers the the geographic center of the earth from his perspective, which is really the only one that counts, I'd say. And he also considered the spiritual center, the birthplace of the church, from which the gospel started, went out, and will come back as as history draws to a close. So, 
That's why we call it the epicenter. Now, the question is, what is the state of the epicenter in 2012? Well, it it pains me to report to you tonight that great darkness is descending on the people of the Middle East. Radical Islamic militants, both Sunni and Shia, are rising to power in one country after another. Lawlessness is spreading. Violence against Christians, against Jews, against fellow Muslims, against Americans, against others, is increasing. The global economic crisis that has affected all of us is pushing millions of people in the Middle East who are already struggling against poverty or in poverty, and some in deep poverty, it's pushing them even deeper and further into poverty, causing people to suffer and struggle even more than they had to make ends meet. And of course, unfortunately, the evidence continues to mount that perhaps the worst war in the modern history of the Middle East may be just days or weeks away from launching. Now, at the same time as I, as I describe the darkness that is, that is pervading and, and, and increasing in the Middle East, let me also be clear that that's not all that's happening in the epicenter. Darkness is spreading. Uh, but in amidst this darkness, there is great hope. And we need to keep our eyes on the hope, not just get focused simply on the evil and the trouble. Two areas of hope I want to talk about as we begin tonight. First, the Lord Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He is still sovereign. He is still the prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. He is still the wonder-working God that we know in Scripture. This has not changed. This will not change. And we have to be careful to guard our hearts against fear, against depression, against uh, the, the sense of anxiety and pessimism that comes when we see evil, evil rise. This is not happening outside of God's notice. It's not as though he's like, oh, wow, you know, I take my eye off the ball and, you know, watch the, you know, Wimbledon or, you know, whatever for a few seconds. And the next thing I know, things are bad again in the Middle East. This, he is sovereign. He is holy. He has a plan and purpose. And I understand that it feels at times like you've got to be kidding. God could not possibly have a plan and purpose if all this trouble is unfolding and getting worse. But that's actually what prophecy says will happen. It's going to get worse. We're not for worse. We don't want it to get worse. We're supposed to be praying for peace and, and, and being peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. But we have to understand that he's going to allow things to get worse over time. But he is a sovereign. And we've seen two huge answers to prayer this year. Many in the epicenter. But I want to focus, I want to mention two big answers to prayer tonight. For one, Gilad Shalit came home this year. Shalit is the Israeli soldier. Amen. He's the Israeli soldier that was kidnapped by Hamas in Gaza on June 25th, 2006. But God heard the prayers of his people. He showed mercy to Gilad and his family. And Gilad was released on October 18th, 2011, after 1,940 days in Hamas captivity. But he's out tonight. And he's been out for several months. And we need to thank the Lord. It's almost been a year now. And thank the Lord for that answer to prayer. Because I know many of you and many of you around the world were praying for his safety and his release. But there's another person who was released, and that happened just a few days ago. Pastor Youssef Nadharkani was also released from an Iranian prison. 
Nadarkhanian is, is an Iranian Muslim convert to Christianity. He's one of about a million plus Shia Muslims who said, yeah, you know, I'm out of Islam. I'm done with Islam. It's not right. It's not true. I'm going with Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he's the only way to get to the Father. And Pastor Yusuf said yes to Jesus. But not only did he say yes to Jesus, he became a pastor so he could teach, so he could preach, so he could, he could win people to Christ, Muslims to Christ in Iran. And so, of course, they arrested him. And they charged him with apostasy. But you know what? God heard the prayers of his people. And God showed mercy to Pastor Yusuf and his family. And Yusuf was acquitted just a few days ago on the, on the apostasy charges. Now, he was found guilty of sharing the gospel with Muslims. And uh, he was sentenced to three years in prison, but he was released having basically essentially served his term already. Now again, many of you prayed for these two, and often it seemed like this was impossible. But see, that's the God that we serve. He's the God of the impossible. And we should never think, amen. It's okay, you can clap. Amen. Do not get cynical. Do not think that just because bad things are happening that Christ isn't on the throne, that he isn't sovereign, that he isn't a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. My uh, pastor in college, Dr. T.E. Koshi, who discipled my wife and me and some of our friends, he just went home to be with the Lord uh, a week and a half ago. And uh, he, he's from India. And he used to say, Joel, lean, visa of a prayer, hearing and a prayer, answering God, a wonderworking God. Now, we had to have English-to-English translation, admittedly. (laughs) But that's true. It's always been true. It remains true. And the question is, do we live like we believe that God is the prayer-hearing and prayer-answering God, the God who works wonders? Because that's who he is. Amen. Now, I just want to take one note to say, we need to draw a lesson from Pastor Yusuf. Let me ask you this question. And I want you to process this tonight and over the next few days of the Epicenter Conference. If you were arrested and charged with sharing the gospel with Muslims or anyone from anywhere in the Epicenter, would there be enough evidence for you to be guilty? I'm not asking you to raise your hand or give your testimony tonight. I'm just saying we're going to face persecution as followers of Christ. Uh, most of us don't face it at the level of our brothers and sisters. And we don't face anything close to that. But Paul told Timothy that all who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the question is, if we got arrested for sharing the gospel with Muslims or with Jews or anyone else from the Middle East, would you and I have enough evidence against us to be convicted? I think that's a convicting question. Now, the second reason for hope as we look at the, at the darkness pervading the epicenter tonight, is, is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The Lord Jesus Christ said, famously, right, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's more, Christ is coming back. He's coming back soon. Now, don't ask me when, because I'm not Harold camping. I can't tell you. I don't know. I know it's sooner than yesterday, uh, but I don't know. And neither do you. And nobody knows. But, but he's coming back again. And, and, he, and he's building his church. He is building his church. He calls us to serve in that church and be part of that process here and all the way back in the epicenter where the church began. And when it feels like the 
uh, gates of hell are prevailing against the church, especially in the epicenter, we need to remember this truth because this is what gives us hope that Christ himself is building the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he's going to come and take that bride, that church back home. And then he's going to come with that bride back here for a thousand years. This is good news. This is good news. And it ought to motivate us to love every single person in the epicenter because we want them to know him as well as make him known. That's why we have have hope. Because our God is sovereign, he is holy, he is powerful, and Jesus Christ is building his church, and he's coming back again. Now, Holy Spirit is moving powerfully in the epicenter. Yes, evil is moving rapidly and powerfully, but the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully as well. More Jews and more Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in these these years that we're living in than at any other time in human history. This is the greatness of our great God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is shining brightly in the darkness. And as the darkness gets darker, the word of God remains that light. You and I, who are supposed to be the light of the world, have that opportunity to strengthen our brothers and sisters in the region who are the light of the world. And people will be drawn to the light. Now, please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33. I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 33. Uh, beginning in verse 1, and I want to take you through a passage that will be really the core of our message here tonight. Ezekiel, chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel writes, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet, and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, His blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Those, my friends, are sobering verses. Now, what's interesting is if you read this passage in the context of Ezekiel, and like the previous chapter, for example, what you'll find is that God is just describing a whole series of countries that judgment is going to fall upon. Uh, Israel happens to be one of those. But so is Iran, and so is Egypt, and Assyria, and, and, the, and the regions that we now think of as, as Jordan. This is, God is saying he's going to bring a sword on a whole series of countries. And, and so he's saying that 
there is a, that God wants us to have people who watch, who are watchmen on the wall, who are watching what's happening spiritually, geopolitically, economically, who are watching what's happened. And if they see a disaster coming, if they see a war coming, if they see the sword, the sword representing war, violence, uh, uh, terrorism, other, uh, other types of violence, if you see that coming, you're to warn people, right? You as the watchman may not be able to stop the sword that's coming. Your job is not to stop it, per se, but is to warn people, to see it, understand it, and communicate it. That's the job of the watchman on the wall. And that's, you know, this is a, uh, in a sense, a repeat in Ezekiel 33 of something that uh, God said to Ezekiel early on in the first few chapters of Ezekiel. But in that case, he was speaking specifically about Israel. And that, uh, in the, and that Ezekiel himself was the watchman on the wall, as it were, to see the threats coming against Israel and warning them, not only that the threat was coming, but that the only, there was only uh, one way to take true safety, and that was to turn to the Lord. Now, obviously it also meant take literal safety, take every precaution against the war that's coming to be ready, but it also meant to be ready spiritually. That's the job of Ezekiel, one of the Hebrew prophets, one of the great Hebrew prophets. Now, Ezekiel 33 is broadening that picture. Ezekiel, who's the watchman on the wall for Israel, is now supposed to tell people, both in his time and obviously through Scripture through up to our time, that people ought to be watching. The people who love God and know his word need to be watching carefully for the threats that are coming. And if you see a threat coming, if you see a war coming... You need to warn people, get ready, be prepared, physically, financially, all kinds of uh, practical ways, but also spiritually. And as you, as you go through it, he repeats in, in verse 7, God says, Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. He restates Ezekiel's specific job. He's given a broader view, but now he's talking again. Remember, you're the watchman for Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth, God says, and give them a warning from me. Now, he says in verse 8, when you say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not... I'm sorry, when I, when God, God's saying to Ezekiel, when I, God, say to, uh, say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you, Ezekiel, do not warn the wicked man from his way that the wicked man shall die in, in his iniquity but his blood I will require from your hand sobering in other words a guilty person a, a sinner is, is responsible before God for his own sins but we who know the Lord and serve the Lord have a tremendously sobering responsibility when you see a threat coming you have to speak out and when you see, when God says to a wicked man, you will die in your sin, you need to warn that wicked man, just like somebody warned us. Just like somebody told us, you know what? God loves you, but you're lost, brother. Or brother to be, <laughs> sister to be. You know, you need Christ. You need the sacrifice of the lamb on the altar, the perfect lamb, Jesus. It's the only way you can be saved from your wickedness. It's the only way any of us can be saved. But God says, if you don't warn him or her, I'm going to hold you accountable. 
Now, the Bible doesn't say what that accountability is. We're not going to lose our salvation because we didn't warn people, we didn't share the gospel with them. But do you want to stand before Jesus Christ one day, which we all will, those of us who know him, we will stand before him, born again by his grace, by what he did for us, not what we did for him. But he will review the things we did for him. And we do not, I, 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 I do not, I'll let you speak for yourself. I do not want to stand before him and, and have him say, you knew wars were coming, Joel. You wrote books about them. You had conferences. You, you, you had websites. You, you seemed to have some sense of what was cooking. Why didn't you also warn people they need Jesus? Right? Yes, be Warn people in a real and practical way, but also give them hope. Give them an opportunity to find salvation from their wickedness. This is a sobering passage, and I think it really applies to where we are now in terms of the epicenter. Two important questions emerge from this passage. Number one, will you and I be watchmen on the wall? Be willing and able to see the threats rising, or will we turn a blind eye? And not just us, but followers of Jesus Christ all over the world. Will we see the threats rising, or will we turn a blind eye to them? That's number one. Number two, in light of such rising threats, will you and I act with love and honor and courage and compassion... Or will we keep silent? Since the last Epicenter Conference, since Skip and I and, and, and our, our colleagues were in Jerusalem last summer, I've had the opportunity to, uh, to go to two places that I had never been before. The first, of them was, uh, first one was in Poland, uh, to the Auschwitz uh, death camp. And uh, I, I happened to take a pastor from a congregation in Germany and his wife and and uh, Pastor Ray Bentley, also from San Diego, and his wife, Vicki. And we went, none of us had been to Auschwitz, but we went in a, in a very cold and dark November day, and we walked through that death camp. Now, I have to say that, as a Rosenberg, it's a tough thing to... I didn't want to go. I felt like God wanted me to go, so I wanted to be obedient. And, and to stand in a, in a Nazi gas chamber... where about a million Jews died just at that camp to see in the next room the ovens and to think that there were people that died there uh, and that I was standing there now, that God had judged that evil, he had eradicated that evil, and now it was possible... For someone who wasn't around at that time to come and stand in a gas chamber. I had a lot of thoughts swirling through my head, as you might imagine. And, uh, and an interesting thing is I'm, you know, I'm Jewish on my father's side. His family escaped out of Russia. And I'm grateful for all the Russians that died to defeat uh, the Nazi curse. And I'm English on my mom's side, a Gentile. And so I'm very grateful for Churchill and for the British 
And I'm grateful for this country that we love as Americans who are part of that allied coalition to liberate not just the Jewish people, but the world. People knew what was happening in Auschwitz. Christians knew what was happening in Auschwitz. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them did nothing, said nothing. And six million Jews perished and millions of others. A few weeks ago, Lynn and I had the opportunity to take our boys to Pearl Harbor. Uh, we'd never been. Uh, we went out to the USS Arizona Memorial and we spent some time teaching our boys about what it means to get blindsided. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by that evil. We didn't understand the threat posed by Adolf Hitler and the rise of the Nazi regime in Germany in the 1930s. We certainly didn't understand it well enough. We didn't take it seriously enough. And we were blindsided by the invasion of Europe and the, and the death camps of the Holocaust. We didn't understand the threat that was posed by Imperial Japan in 1941. And we were blindsided by the attack at Pearl Harbor. We didn't understand the nature and threat of the evil posed by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And we were blindsided by the attacks of September 11th, 2001. And today, too many in government, here and around the world, but also in the church, here and around the world, either do not see the evil rising in Iran, Syria, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and throughout the epicenter, or refuse to take action. Tragically, the Arab Spring, as it was described, has been a catastrophic failure. All of their hope, all of our hope, about the rise of free people and free nations, free elections and free economies, freedom to worship, freedom to preach the gospel, all that we had hoped for, all that they hoped for in the Arab world, in so many of these countries, those hopes have been dashed. What is rising instead is the exact opposite. Dangerous, radical, Islamic regimes that will oppress millions upon millions of Arabs, primarily, others as well, and foment more violence and more war. Take Libya. The new leaders of Libya are radical Islamists. They're either members of or allies of the Muslim Brotherhood. They are committed to creating an Islamic republic and imposing Sharia law on the people of Libya as part of the Islamic caliphate or kingdom. They have a deep hatred for Jews, for Israel, for the United States. Yesterday, as you know, Islamic militants attacked the American consulate in the city of Benghazi. 
They murdered U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens. They murdered three other U.S. diplomatic staff. It was a five-hour battle. And the Libyan government that we helped come to power did precious little to save our people. Egypt. The new president of Egypt, Mohamed Morsi, is a senior leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. He hates Israel. He's not a big fan of the United States either, despite the fact that we provide him $1.5 billion a year in foreign aid. Morsi gave a speech in Cairo University in May, just before the Egyptian elections. And he, and he said this, and it was very little reported in the media. Uh, some did report it uh, to their credit, but, but you need to know this quote because it defines who Morsi is. Mohammed Morsi said at Cairo University in May, the Quran is our constitution. The prophet is our leader. Jihad is our path. And death in the name of Allah is our goal. Let me say that again. In case you were drifting off for a moment. As a watchman of the wall or a potential watchman of the wall, I want you to pay attention to this one. The Quran is our constitution. The prophet, Muhammad, is our leader. Jihad, holy war, violent holy war, is our path. And death in the name of Allah is our goal. And so he was voted in. And then we saw yesterday the early stages of what that means. More than 2,000 radical Muslim militants stormed the American embassy in images that harken back to the 1979 revolution in Iran when they stormed the United States embassy. They tore down the American flag. They raised the flag of Islam. And the Egyptian security forces that we fund and train and equip they did precious little. Syria. In December, I reported that some 3,500 Syrians had died in this revolution against the Bashar al-Assad government. Today, that number has soared past 25,000. Most of these are civilians. Some of them are are rebels, and most of those rebels are not people we want to take over power either. I, I don't want to take them to take power. They, this is, this is, these are radical Muslims themselves. But, but many of the 25,000, I'm not sure, I don't think it's possible to, 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 to break these numbers down, but, but many of them are, were innocent civilians, Arabs, Syrians, who were caught in the crossfire, butchered, massacred, and many of them by the Assad government. If that weren't bad enough, there's a growing fear in the region, certainly by Israel, but others, that the Assad regime may use its stockpiles of chemical weapons against its own people, much as Saddam did against the Kurdish uprising. Or allow its weapons of mass destruction to be transferred to terrorist groups or to other states like Iran. Or lose control of their stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons and see those stockpiles fall into the hands of enemies of the West, enemies of Israel, with catastrophic consequences. And then there's Iran. 
In the summer of 2009, millions of Iranians turned out on the streets to protest their wicked government. God loves the people of Iran like he loves the people of Syria and Egypt and Libya and Tunisia. But that's a wicked government. And people turned out to oppose it, to overthrow it. They sought a peaceful, more moderate government, a democracy even. Sadly, our government who helped overthrow Hosni Mubarak, an ally, did nothing to help overthrow the mullahs in Tehran. Arguably, our worst enemies. The latest report from the International Atomic Energy Agency provides more evidence just this week that Iran is developing nuclear warheads. Iran now has enough enriched uranium for at least five nuclear warheads, and that's the uranium that we know about. Iran has doubled its uranium enrichment capacity at its most secure, hardened, underground nuclear facility which is just outside this, the religious city of Qom. Despite all of the economic sanctions, which are having a huge effect on the Iranian people, a negative effect, they are suffering. The, the sanctions are working, but they're not dissuading the Iranian government from pursuing the Islamic bomb. Now, now understand the stakes. If the Ayatollah Khamenei acquires nuclear warheads and the high-speed ballistic missiles to deliver those warheads, Khamenei could do in about six minutes what it took Adolf Hitler nearly six years to do, and that is to kill six million Jews in Israel. But Jews would not be the only ones affected. It's not just Israeli Jews who are at risk from an Iranian nuclear-armed country. Israeli Arabs are at risk. Palestinian Arabs are at risk. Jewish and Arab believers in Jesus in that region are at risk. And in fact, the most dangerous corridor on the face of the planet today is the corridor between Tel Aviv and Tehran. This is the most dangerous corridor on the planet. Every single human being that lives in that corridor between Tel Aviv and Tehran is in grave Danger. That said, Iran does not seem to be taking seriously, in my judgment, the prospect of an Israeli preemptive strike. Now, let me be clear when I say Israeli preemptive strike. Israel is not starting this war. Israelis have been blown up and shot and stabbed all over the world, including just recently in Europe, by Iranians. I'm not talking about the Iranian people. I'm talking about the regime, to be clear about this. But Israel considers it a one or two or maybe three bomb country. Those are nuclear warheads, depending on their size and capacity, could annihilate the state of Israel. Now, would God let that happen? That's a separate question. I think the answer is no. I'm not the prime minister of Israel. You have to look at it from his perspective, from his cabinet's perspective. Now, indeed, not only are Iranians, at least at the government, they don't seem to think they're in any danger because they believe that Allah is with them, that the wind is at their back, that they're preparing the the groundwork for the 12th imam to come, the Islamic so-called Messiah. They expect him to come and they believe that's their job to get ready by killing as many Jews and Christians as possible. Or at least developing the tools for the Mahdi, the 12th imam, to come and, and do that job himself. Now, the thing is interesting that many in Israel and throughout the epicenter 
think the talk of war is just bluster and saber rattling. I'm not saying they're not anxious. I'm not saying they're not taking any precautions. But, but generally speaking, it, it, the accurate assessment is a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, wars, rumors of wars. We've got rumors of wars every day. We live in the epicenter. We get it. Like you and millions of Christians around the world, I am praying for the peace of Jerusalem because that's what the Bible teaches me to do, right? Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I know that we serve a prayer, hearing, and a prayer, answering God, a wonderworking God. And I believe that one of the reasons we have not seen this war that we've been anxious about for the last few years so far is because God has been answering those prayers. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want this region to go up in flames. What he wants is people to hear the gospel, choose to say yes to Jesus or to say no to Jesus. He, of course, wants them to say yes to Jesus. He wants the church to be strong. He wants the church to be healthy. He wants the church in the east and the west to be strengthening our brothers and sisters, loving them, showing compassion, investing in them, helping them before this thing goes ballistic in a literal way. I believe that God has heard our prayers. I believe God has answered our prayers. And I'm grateful that in an Israeli-Iranian war that seems likely in the last few years has not yet happened. I believe this is an answer to our prayers, and we should keep praying. But the Bible is also clear that sometimes God allows wars to happen. In Matthew 12, chapter 24, the Lord Jesus taught us that in the last day, there would be wars and rumors of wars, revolutions, Violence, lawlessness. Check, 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 check. Yet he also promised that amidst all this bad news, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end shall come. In the midst of all the bad news, he's going to proclaim the good news through the church. So yes, wars and revolutions will come. Why might God allow them? He's got a lot of reasons. His ways are higher than our ways. Thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But one of the reasons, I believe, that he allows evil to move is because it creates the conditions for people to know that what they have currently is not working for them. It's not working for them geopolitically. It's not working for them economically. It's not working for them, most importantly, spiritually. And wars and and chaos and lawlessness create conditions by which people suddenly develop ears to hear the gospel. Hearts to receive the gospel. And in a region that has been fairly gospel resistant over the last 1900 years, this is something that God uses. Does he wish that people would open their hearts otherwise? Yes, he does. But think of how you came to Christ. Many of you, it's because of trauma. It's because of big, big mistakes you made in your life. And God rattled your cage. And you suddenly said, I need something more than I have. We don't want war. We are commanded in Scripture to pray for peace. But sometimes God says no to our prayers for peace. Sometimes he allows war. And what man plans for evil, God can turn for good. And in this context to you, I have to report to you that tonight I believe Prime Minister Netanyahu could just be days, if not weeks, away from ordering a full-scale air and missile attack, special forces attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. I pray that there's another way. 
I pray that any other way that could neutralize that threat and not create an explosion throughout the entire region, I pray fervently, as I know you do, God, do it any other way. Let this cup pass. If there's any other way, Father, please. Events can change suddenly. God released Gilad Shalit. God released Pastor Yusuf. Things change. Esther, Mordecai, prayed and fasted, mobilized people to pray and fast. Why? Because of a Persian tyrant was going to kill all the Jews. But it didn't happen. Why? Because God moved powerfully. He can do it again. Don't get cynical. Don't get pessimistic. God can do it. But prepare yourself for the fact that in, for purposes that go beyond what we can fully comprehend, he might not hold it back much longer. And I believe that evidence is mounting rapidly that Israel is going to war with Iran. Again, a lot of factors can change this. I'm not predicting it. I'm saying this is where the evidence is leading. Let me give you a few examples. Israel's security cabinet met last week for a 10-hour meeting to discuss the latest intelligence on the Iran nuclear threat and to consider Israel's military options. The Jerusalem Post noted that this was the first time the full security cabinet had met for such an in-depth discussion on Iran in several months. A senior advisor to Mr. Netanyahu said last week, quote, we are entering the most fateful 50 days Israel has faced since the Yom Kippur War, the war in which Israel uh, suffered a, a surprise attack against them and nearly lost the country. That was in 1973. Troubling is that relations at this moment between Israel and the United States are deteriorating rapidly. Indeed, we have reached, in my view, an all-time low in U.S.-Israeli relations. On Sunday, the U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton publicly announced that the United States is not setting deadlines for Iran to stop illegally enriching uranium in violation of UN Security Council resolutions. And we will not be setting deadlines for Iran to stop developing nuclear weapons. President Obama and his senior aides have thus far refused to establish red lines. Israel's asking, what's the point at which it's over, that all the sanctions and the diplomacy and everything else hasn't worked and we have to go to war. What's the point? What's the red line beyond which it's war? We don't want it, but we need to know what you think, Mr. President. The President of the United States is not, he's refusing to establish those red lines or at least to communicate them. Now we learn that the President has turned down not one but two requests by Prime Minister Netanyahu to meet when Netanyahu comes to Washington, or on to New York for the UN Security, on the UN General Assembly launch in just a few weeks, uh, Netanyahu offered to go to New York and meet with him. He offered to be in Washington to meet with him. Uh, the president said he, he, he was busy. He did, however, schedule an appearance on the late show with David Letterman. Now, that's not funny. I understand it sounds funny. It's not. The president of the United States. Refusing to meet with the Prime Minister of Israel on the verge of war. Now, if you got something to say to keep the Prime Minister from Israel from going to war, now is the time to say it. But the Wall Street Journal summed it up this morning this way. For an American president who says he will always have Israel's back, it seems like the message to Netanyahu is, you're on your own, pal. 
Mr. Netanyahu's response was this. The world tells Israel, wait, there's still time. And I say, wait for what? Wait until when? Those in the international community who refuse to put red lines before Iran don't have the moral right to place a red light before Israel. Now listen, I I come back to the point, we don't want war. We don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. We want anything, any way other than war to to accomplish that objective. But you have a a breakdown in U.S.-Israel relations. And I don't have an inside track. Yes, I worked for a few months for Mr. Netanyahu 12 years ago. Let's not overstate my understanding of this. But I'm just telling you from observing him for 12 years and hearing that quote, I think he's going to war. Because I don't think he thinks he has any other option. How then should Christians respond? I want to show you a uh, short video, five minutes uh, before we end tonight, as we talk about this practical side of this. Okay, that's the context. But I'm going to show you a little video that we're going to put up on the, uh, the Josh Fund website in the next few days and, to, and begin to share with people, just give a little visual sense of what the Joshua Fund is trying to do to get ready for this war. We don't have geopolitical influence, okay? Yes, I live in Washington, and I work for Netanyahu, and I work for U.S. leaders. I'm telling you, I have no influence on these guys. And you don't either, to be very honest. (laughs) But we are citizens of another kingdom, and we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and he's in charge. So don't get discouraged by all that I just told you. You're like, how could I not? Because he's sovereign, he's in charge, he has a plan, and he's building this church and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. That's the truth. So the question becomes, what do we do? What do you do? What do I do? The Joshua Fund has been wrestling over this over the last six or seven years, and this is a little snapshot of what we've been uh, doing uh, in in the last uh, few months, uh, last few years. Um, Let's roll that videotape. the south, the Muslim Brotherhood is now ruling in Egypt. To the north, more than 20,000 people have been killed in Syria as that nation continues to spiral out of control. To the east, Iran continues in its pursuit to develop nuclear weapons and long-range ballistic missiles while calling for the nation of Israel to be wiped off the face of the earth. What's more, today, there are more than 50,000 rockets and missiles aimed at Israel. Never before in her modern history has there been such serious threats that challenge Israel's very existence. Times are critical in Israel, and the Joshua Fund is responding by mobilizing Christians around the world to pray for peace and prepare for war. The Joshua Fund, with your help and the help of others who pray and give to the work of blessing Israel and her neighbors in Jesus' name, has been taking strategic measures to be able to respond quickly and compassionately when and if war breaks out. 
First, the warehouse that currently provides food and other humanitarian relief supplies to the poor and needy is now equipped to remain fully operational should Israel's power grid be knocked out. A large generator with an emergency fuel supply has been installed that will keep the lights on, the forklift moving, and supplies shipping in delivery trucks and vehicles. Second, we have taken measures to ensure the personal safety for staff and volunteers in time of war. To keep food and supplies reaching the needy, we have equipped the bomb shelter in the Joshua Fund warehouse with gas masks, food, water, and other survival essentials that will help in the event our facility becomes the direct target during the war. We have also put our Israeli staff through basic first aid and emergency preparedness training. Third, we have invested significantly in communication technology. It is critical for the storefront and ministry partners we work with to be able to communicate with the Joshua Fund and with one another during times of war or natural disaster. So we have purchased satellite phones and provided them to our staff and key allies to ensure continued communication if cell phone and landlines go down. Satellite phones will also enable us to receive critical war updates and urgent prayer requests from key allies in Israel and pass them on to you in a timely way. Fourth, we have been steadily increasing our stockpiles of food, water, and water purification tablets, blankets, and other humanitarian relief supplies in our central warehouse for use in time of war. We have also been increasing the stock levels of food and relief supplies at each of the storefront locations so that they are even further equipped to meet people's needs rapidly when war begins. At the same time, we have supplied each storefront with a generator, lights, and battery-operated radios so that they can be better prepared to meet people's needs under very challenging conditions. These are just some of the preparations that the Joshua Fund has been making in recent months. Now we are turning our attention towards creating mobile relief facilities that we can deploy in needed areas throughout the country. In Psalm 122, we are told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In Matthew 24, we are told to be ready for wars and rumors of wars. In the last days, none of us want war. We're all praying for peace, but sometimes God allows war to happen. That is why the Joshua Fund is seeking to be faithful to the scriptures. We're praying for peace while preparing for war. The evidence suggests a major war between Israel and Iran could begin any moment. The Joshua Fund, along with our partners and allies in Israel, continue to train and equip and stockpile and prepare for war so that should that day come, we will be ready to offer help and hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for standing with us at this critical time with your prayers and financial support. Please stay up to the minute on how you can pray and help with updates at joshuafund.net and at the Joshua Fund page on Facebook. I want to walk through a few other points uh, of what we're doing with your prayers, with your help, as an update for you. Uh, 
Over the last few years, we have established and are assisting 12 uh, food and relief distribution centers uh, throughout Israel. Uh, we call them storefronts, but as uh, you heard that term in the video. But we've established 12 all around the country. Uh, two, we are providing humanitarian relief both to Jews and to Arabs. That's central to the Joshua mission, to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus Christ. Three, we're helping to equip local believers to show God's love and compassion in a real and practical way. This is uh, uh, the, the, the storefronts, the distribution centers themselves are run by believers so that they can show the love of Jesus uh, as, as this unfolds. We've been purchasing trucks and vans for local believers to help them minister to the poor and needy. Uh, you, you, these trucks don't have Joshua logos on it. The bags of food don't have a Joshua logo on it. This, we're not trying to build a brand. We're trying to help the local believers love their neighbors. And I think this is critical. Uh, the Joshua uh, warehouse staff in Israel purchases and ships and distributes approximately 45 tons of food and relief supplies to the poor and needy each month. Uh, from its inception... Uh, the Joshua Fund has shipped about 989 tons of food through the warehouse. We were doing some prior to the, creation, uh, the, the renting of the warehouse, but and by the end of October, we'll hit over 1,000 tons. In addition, we've helped another Christian organization in Israel purchase and distribute and then stockpile uh, another 500 tons of food and relief supplies over the last few years. Now, is this enough? <laughs> No. Is this a lot? No. Uh, is it more than what was happening in the land uh, prior to six years ago or so? Yes, it is. Do we take any credit for any of this? Absolutely not. Uh, look, God is sovereign. He is holy. He is moving powerfully. He is remembering the Jews and the Palestinians who are poor and needy physically and spiritually. He, uh, the, he remembers those who are living in harm's way. And in need of prayers and the encouragement and the equipping of Christians from all over the world. Uh, we're, not, we're not doing this because we've got some plan. We, we were doing this out of obedience to what Jesus himself did, right? He fed 5,000 people. He fed 4,000 people. He preached. He always did it with unconditional love. He didn't say, you have to follow me. And if you're going to follow me, get in this line, you get your chow. But if you're not going to follow me, you get in this line, you get bupkis. You dish for nothing. No, he fed people whether they were going to follow him or not. He healed the ten lepers. How many came back? Yeah, so he, he healed them anyway, knowing that only one would come back and bow down and thank him and worship him. But that's who he is. He's a, he's a God who loves unconditionally and he expects his followers to do it too. We're not tying strings to this aid. Do we wish we could do more? Absolutely. With your help, we could do more. But we're doing what we're... We're trying to be faithful in a few things in the hopes that as God teaches us to be faithful, that we will be faithful, that he will give us more to do. But, but the, I, the focus is on Christ. The focus is on Jesus, the king of the universe who's going to reign over the epicenter in person from Jerusalem not that long from now. Don't ask me how long, but... But Christ is raising up a movement of his followers around the world, including you, who are committed to loving Israelis because Jesus loves Israelis, who are committed to loving Palestinians because Jesus loves 
Palestinians who are committed to loving Arabs and Persians all through the epicenter because that's what Christ does. He loves, for, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is how the body of Christ is supposed to work. This, the, the, those who have, who have are supposed to be praying for and caring and serving those in need, physically and spiritually, and doing so in the name of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and to do so with unconditional love and unwavering support. We are supposed to be watchmen on the walls. We are supposed to see threats coming and not stay silent, not do nothing. We're supposed to speak. We're supposed to act in Christ's name. Look, as I mentioned, we have very little geopolitical influence, but we are not powerless. We are not powerless. We can pray to a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. We can preach the word of God, the word of life. We can hold it out to people. We can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the name that is the only name under heaven and earth by which we can be saved. We can proclaim the gospel. We can train and equip our brothers and sisters. We can encourage our brothers and sisters. We can visit them. We can pray for them and encourage them. We can show Christ's love and compassion to everyone in the epicenter, not have it be an either or. Oh, I'm pro-Israel. Oh, no, no. I'm pro-Palestinian. Or I... No, that's not how Jesus looks at it. It's not either or with him. Jesus commands us, love your neighbor. Jesus commands us, love your enemies. Jesus commands us to love one another. And that's what this conference at its core is all about. And if we don't shine as light in the darkness that is pervading in the epicenter, I ask you, who will? God bless you.